0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the politicization of the derailment in Ohio and the slow response from the Biden administration, whose Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg just showed up today at the site three weeks after the toxic spill. Joining us is John Nichols, The Nation magazine's Washington correspondent, whose books include The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, and most recently, Coronavirus, Criminals, and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. We'll discuss his latest article at The Nation, It's Time to Talk About Nationalizing America's Railroads, and the Crisis in American Capitalism, which has become All about extracting wealth, not creating it. Then we'll examine the vast constituency of Americans comprising much of the Republican Party who believe in lies and conspiracies following the recent revelations that Fox News anchors and owners knew they were spreading lies but were afraid of their audience, so they decided telling the truth would be bad for business. Joining us is Will Sommer a politics reporter for The Daily Beast and the co-host of the podcast Fever Dreams. His work covering QAnon and other conspiracy theories has been featured in multiple documentaries, including HBO's Q, Into the Storm. He is the author of the new book, Just Out, Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America, and we will explore the world of faith over fact and belief over reason. Then finally, we'll discuss a new report on Russia's war crimes in targeting healthcare infrastructure and personnel from eyewitness to atrocities, Insecurity Insight, the Media Initiative for Human Rights, the Ukrainian Healthcare Center, and Physicians for Human Rights. Joining us is Christian DeVos, a Director of Research and Investigations at Physicians for Human Rights. He has worked as a human rights advocate, attorney, and researcher for organizations including Amnesty International, the United States Institute for Peace, the War Crimes Research Office, and was a senior advocacy officer with the Open Society Justice Initiative. He's the author of Complementarity, Catalyst, Compliance, the International Criminal Court in Uganda, Kenya, and the Democratic Republic of Congo, and is the author of a new report at Physicians for Human Rights, Destruction and Devastation. One year of Russia's assault on Ukraine's healthcare system. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is John Nichols, the Nation magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, and most recently, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Cause the Crisis. And his latest article of the Nation is, It's Time to Talk About Nationalizing America's Railroads. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Nichols.
1: It's a pleasure to be with you, my friend.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, John. And before we get into uh, talking about such a socialist idea, John, I'm shocked, I'm shocked, nationalizing the railroads. But let's talk a little bit about what happened yesterday with Donald Trump visiting the site of the crime in uh, East Palestine, small town in uh, Ohio near the Pennsylvania border. He handed out Trump water, standing beside Senator J.D. Vance, was asked by a reporter about how come he deregulated the rail industry, preventing brakes that would stop a train, particularly carrying highly flammable material. He pulled an Obama-era proposal that would have directed companies to have at least a two-man cruise on trains. And he also halted an auditing program for railroads that has has since been re Vitalized by the Biden administration. And guess what Trump said in response to the the real evidence? (laughs) He just denied it. (laughs) He lied. Well, uh, what do you do?
1: Well, what you do is you recognize this has gotten very wrapped up in politics. Right. And um, and at the core of this, you had something happen in East Palestine, uh, Ohio, that happens a lot in America. And that is trains derail. Um, they don't have the proper safety systems. They do not have proper staffing. The workers have not been given the support uh, and the time off that they need uh, to do their jobs. And we've been alerted to this again and again. It has happened under Democratic administrations and it has happened under Republican administrations. You can you know trace lines of blame and and criticism. But what we ought to understand is at the heart of this problem is a reality, and that is that the freight rail lines are owned by incredibly wealthy people who did not buy them because they wanted to run railroads and grow up, you know, playing with railroads as kids and things like that. They bought them to squeeze out as much profit as they can get, and they're doing that um, at uh, great expense to the American people at significant damage to the American economy. Um, They're making a mess of things. And that really does open up a discussion about whether the people that are in charge of railroads should continue to be in charge of them.
0: But on the political level, what's going on, it seems that the Republicans, and particularly Fox News, are trying to suggest that this is all about the fact that Biden only cares about woke inner city people and not good white Republican people out in the countryside. Is is that going to fly? I mean, uh, look, the
1: Biden administration was very slow to respond to this. And I think we should, we should recognize that. Um, the, this was a, a, a bad, bad derailment. So they the only one, they happen a lot. Um, but this was a very bad one. Uh, the Biden administration should have been very publicly out there, earlier and faster, um, I, there's just no question of that. At the same time, uh, the accountability concerns that have been raised about the Trump administration, they're legitimate too, right? And so I think at the, at the heart of the matter here, what you want to see is an urgent response when a train derails. Now, um, a little late in the game, but the Biden administration does seem to be responding in some pretty sincere ways. Um, there's more presence there, um, that again, it's getting, you know, we're kind of getting all wrapped up in politics here and I understand that. And I, I do understand that, you know, kind of everything goes political at this point, but, uh, once we make sure that the people in Ohio are safe and taken care of, right. That they have, you know, something more than Trump water, right. That they have, you know, actual, um, protection, uh, once that's, once that's established, then It is a good time at which to revisit a lot of the issues involving railroads in the United States and to ask some serious questions about um, whether this hyper profit driven approach to running our railroad system makes sense. You know, in other countries where they're having very similar debates, this is not just an American concern. What they have determined in a lot of places is that privatization of rail or privately run rail just doesn't work very well. Um, there's a lot of problems with it. And so I I do think that we are at a point where we can, A, first and foremost, care for the people in Ohio, make sure that they are well taken care of, care for the workers on these trains, make sure that they're protected, uh, but then look really at some of the deeper systemic challenges involving the rail system.
0: Well, you know, this derailment happened three weeks ago, and only yeah. today did Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg show up. And he did say that, he said he was a little late, uh, which is, I guess, an understatement. But in terms of what you're telling us about contrast between other countries with rails, first of all, other countries have high-speed passenger rails, yes, and we don't in this country because Amtrak is a poor cousin to the freight rail. The freight rail companies control and own the own the railways, and you know they only allow Amtrak to go through when it suits them. So it's a complete disaster, and I mean, it, it sounds like the whole thing needs to be rethought from the ground up. And yeah, I guess does. that's why you're thinking of in terms of nationalization.
1: Sure, and um, and understand this is not a radical idea. Uh, the Wilson, President Wilson, uh, hardly a radical, uh, took over the rail lines during World War One, um, and and actually ran them as as a public entity. Uh, it went so well that the workers at the end of World War One petitioned and asked, urged that the rail lines remain uh, owned by under the operation of the federal government. And uh, that didn't happen. They were turned back over to uh, the private sector and it became a real mess. In the 1930s, during President Roosevelt's uh, administration, there was an open debate about nationalization. It was actually something that that we came pretty close to. Ultimately, they they settle for a lot more regulation. And, and, you know, some of that regulation was to the good. But um, they these issues continue to arise. And I think they've especially arisen in this kind of moment of Uber capitalism, where you have investors buying, you know, institutions simply to make as much money as they possibly can. So it isn't like, you know, you have long term investors who've been committed to a particular rail line or a particular, you know, th- type of rail. Um, Now you've got people who don't know anything about it, don't have any real interest in it. They just want to take as much money out as they can. That's a point at which to have an open, honest debate. And again, they're having this debate in the United Kingdom where they had a lot of privatization uh, and it has turned out very badly. There's overwhelming concern about it there. Um, Also in a lot of other countries. And the fact of the matter is that uh, we've got all kinds of models from around the world on how to run rail lines. The one thing we know is that the United States has done a lousy job and continues to do a lousy job. We just don't invest enough. Um, We don't have the flexibility and the creativity that we should as regards how to make rail work. And frankly, as regards passenger rail, it's simply, it's just not there. I mean, there's huge portions of this country where you, you can't even begin to imagine using passenger rail to get from place to place. But we should, and as part of that process of you know, rethinking how we do rail, making a deeper commitment to rail, I think we should listen to the workers, listen to the people who actually work on railroads, who run rail lines. What they will tell you is, and what they are saying uh, with increasingly loud voices is that this system would be better if it wasn't run by for-profit companies.
0: Well, I did have a, a rail working union member who was a safety expert on, and it's just appalling how there were so many safety devices that should be there in play that are passive sensors along the rail line. This uh, axle got up to 265 degrees, but spewing sparks that anybody could have seen uh, before the train operator was even notified. And then he tried to slow the train, and he didn't doesn't have the... Electronic brakes that because that was stopped in the Trump administration and and the derailment happened, but Senator Bernie Sanders has written a book now that's just come out about how we really really have to look at American capitalism and how it's become completely corrupted and counterintuitive and Wall Street is all about extracting wealth not creating wealth and even the rubber barons you know they created wealth. But these guys just extract wealth, and and more and more our economy becomes financialized by Wall Street, where they make money out of money and out of nothing, more often than not, mm-hmm. out of algorithms. Frankly, it's really sick, and it needs to be looked at. and I I hope people look at Bernie Sanders' proposals.
1: I I, as someone who uh, helped the senator with that book, I am I'm glad you bring it up, and and I do think that that's exactly the point that we are in a moment where we should be examining our whole economic system and um as sanders says and and a lot of other people including these these rail unions they're not proposing privatization or nationalization because they want some you know like kind of uber government control of everything without flexibility without you know a, a real sense of of how to make things work in a good way they're talking about an alternative to a uber capitalist system that is, as you suggest, all about extracting wealth. And they're just and what they're saying is, look, there's got to be a better way. And the fact of the matter is that small business in this country often works really, really well. Does It does a great job. And there's much to be said for, you know, the the mom and pop businesses that that do deliver services and that do do some great stuff but the fact is that these monopolistic huge combines that are you know really taking over so much of our transportation systems so much of our food production systems you know you just run across the board you can see them all over the place they're not in it to deliver services they're not in it to make our lives better they're not in it to do something that's creative or you know positive. They're in it simply to take as much wealth as they can out. And so while I know there's a lot of people who want to have Democrat versus Republican debates and Trump versus Biden debates about what has gone on here, I think the deeper reality is that as a country, we've been alerted to the fact that we have a lot of train agreements and we have a lot of problems with our train system. Much of this goes back to a refusal by these companies by these owners of the railroads to invest and to support their workers, to make sure that that their train lines are safe, to make sure that their workers are protected. And the workers themselves, Railroad Workers United and other groups, are stepping up and saying, you know, look, this no longer works. This doesn't function anymore. And we need to start to look at alternatives. And that's what I wrote about. I wrote in this piece, I wrote about primarily um, this coalition of railroad workers that has stepped up to say that it's time to to start talking about nationalizing the railroads
0: and you think a thousand over a thousand derailments a year would get somebody's attention wouldn't you
1: well you hope you hope that people would start to pay attention and not just you know make this a a, you know cheap political debate to actually you know go that deeper level and say as a country um we realize maybe we didn't realize maybe a lot of us didn't realize or too many of us didn't but now we realize just how serious the problems are The people who work in that industry, who've been working there for a long time, are saying those problems are, you know, endemic. They've been there for a very, very long time. They have not been addressed. It's time to start to look at them in a much more fundamental way. And that gets us beyond just the, you know, finger pointing and blame laying uh, to the deeper level of saying, do we have an ownership system for the rail lines that, guarantees safety and that that protects workers, that does the best job it can. No one is going to tell you that there won't be derailments in the future. There will, no matter how the rail lines are owned, no matter what the circumstance. But what can be said with a lot of certainty is that if you've got ownership of the railroads that's deeply committed to safety, that is profoundly supportive of the workers, um, that wants to invest and expand, um, I think you're going to have a better system.
0: Well, John Nichols, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
1: It's an honor to be with you, and it's always great to talk with you, Ian.
0: Well, thank you, John. And again, I've been speaking with John Nichols, who is The Nation Magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, and most recently, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Cause the Crisis. And his latest article of The Nation is, It's Time to Talk About Nationalizing America's Railroads. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining the vast constituency of Americans comprising much of the Republican Party who believe in lies and conspiracies following the recent revelation that Fox News anchors and owners knew they were spreading lies but were afraid of their audience, so they decided that telling the truth would be bad for business.
2: Oh, I pray, and if my prayer can cross the sea, the trains and the boats and planes will bring you back, back home to me.
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Will Sommer, a politics reporter for The Daily Beast and the co-host of the podcast Fever Dreams. His work covering QAnon and other conspiracy theories has been featured in multiple documentaries, including HBO's Q, Into the Storm. And he is the author of the new book, Just Out, Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America. Welcome to Background Briefing, Will Summer.
3: Thanks for having me, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And we uh, actually spoke on the very day of the January 6th insurrection. You were covering it live. And, of course, we all remember the shaman with the horns, the QAnon shaman, uh, who also (laughs) shows up in your book with this peculiar character down in um, Arizona. But let me just touch on the more recent story that came as a result of court filings in the case uh, where Fox News is being sued by Dominion voting systems that revealed internal communications of the top people at Fox, both their on-air anchors along with management, including Rupert Murdoch. They're afraid of their own audience. It's very clear. They've helped create a constituency out there in America that believes in conspiracies and lies, in particular, the Trump stopped the steel lie and they were afraid to actually tell the Fox News <laughs> audience that uh, Biden had won as a result. So this leads me to question what kind of constituencies out there, it's a little wonder that QAnon has taken hold if you've already got millions of Americans predisposed to believing lies and conspiracy theories.
3: That's absolutely right Ian, I mean you know as you said these um, the Fox News emails and these text messages really show uh, that they're saying, well, they're saying we know the election wasn't stolen, but we have to uh, say otherwise, because otherwise our, our viewers are going to leave for another network like Newsmax. Um, and so really, you know, the way that plays into QAnon is that you have really no voice on the right, no really effective voice um, that is willing to say that, that a really out there conspiracy theory like QAnon is fake. Um, you know, these people, they basically really only believe what Donald Trump tells them. And he's not willing to do it. Uh, you know, he's, if anything, willing to promote QAnon because he sees it as sort of a, a mega fan club for
0: him. Well, indeed, he had an opportunity, remember? And he said, oh, no, they they really care about children and want to protect children. <laughs> and he wore a Q pin, right?
3: Um, he's posted pictures of himself. Uh, sort of photoshopped to show him with a Q pin. Oh, that's uh, so, yeah, what I So like. Yeah, I mean, he really he really has sort of, um, you know, even a few years ago, I, I never would have expected, as QAnon was growing, that, that it would reach the point where Trump was really sort of actively embracing it.
0: So your book documents how a random anonymous internet post on Reddit in 2017 rose up and swallowed the Republican Party. But... It tells a story from the point of view of families and individuals who've been swept up and sucked into this world of conspiracy and delusion, and some of it's really quite heartbreaking. You met these people, you've met the families. Families do suffer, do they not?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, for me, this is uh, you know there's so many aspects of QAnon and so many that, that can get a lot of headlines, but but I think one of the bigger tragedies we don't often talk about is how, you know, these families can be just obliterated by, by QAnon. Um, you know, one day your, your wife or your, uh, your father, or your son comes in and says, you know, starts talking about QAnon as though it's a real thing. And, you know, this, this really warps the relationship because, you know, from the QAnon believers point of view, this is the most important thing in the world that, uh, you know, the most powerful people in the world are getting away with these heinous crimes um, and it drives them nuts that their their family members won't get on board with fighting this. Um, and so, you know, as, as you said, I've, I've talked to several families where, you know, the, it, was, it was almost like they were going through the grieving process that the person they knew before had died, um, essentially, and had been replaced by this, um, you know, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, is sort of a lunatic um, who who just exists in a fantasy world.
0: Well, in one of the characters, uh, one of the families is uh, David, a blue-collar union tradesman in his 50s, uh, and his son, Nathan, walked into their family home in suburban Chicago and announced, quote, hey, I just want you guys to know that there are a bunch of Hollywood people that are going to be arrested, says Nathan. And then he lists the names of these celebrities that are soon to be arrested for pedophilia. Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg, Oprah Winfrey, etc., and the father says, "Well, I hope it's not Tom Selleck, because I like Tom <laughs> Selleck." So, uh, now you do laugh because it's absolutely absurd. But these people are earnest; they deeply believe this. So, what is that mechanism? Where does that that sort of fault line exist? In American consciousness, I mean that can be invaded in such a way, it's just extraordinary i I sort of struggled to get a handle on it, and I know that's what you sought to do as well
3: i mean it it really is remarkable as you say the you know you, in this case of the family, you have this father who is a guy who was pretty conservative before Trump took office but then found himself so alienated by the by by trump and just what a nasty man he is i mean to to say it frankly. Um, that he effectively became a liberal, whereas his son, um, who's sort of a rootless guy who doesn't have a lot going on, um, is just sucked into QAnon as as a sort of something that gives his life meaning. Uh, and then you throughout the book you sort of see this family fall apart. Um, it is uh, as you say. I mean, what is it? You know, I, this is something I wanted to explore in the book, and I guess I didn't really get a, a solid answer on it. But what is it that um, about America? That, that drives people into these conspiracy theories. Um, I, I think aspects of it are, uh, you know, the, this sort of American tradition of independence and this idea that um, that you, that the, the layman can can divine the, the truth of something um, better than any expert. Uh, and so we have these, you know, in, in the most obvious example is during the pandemic where people say, you know, well, I don't care what all these doctors say about my health. I'm going to take hydroxychloroquine um, or I don't need to wear a mask. Um, and then this kind of spirals out into, into people sort of creating their own world um, and then just sort of signing on for something like QAnon, because while obviously fake um, to the rest of us, uh, it, it feels good to them.
0: Well, the Supreme Court's looking into the responsibility or the lack thereof of, of these big tech companies and media companies in terms of what they allow on their platforms and I guess you make it pretty clear, Will Summer, that social media companies have profited from their engagement with QAnon, have they not?
3: Well, they certainly have. I mean, you know, the QAnon users are, are very engaged. Uh, they are constantly posting. You know, they, they think this is a battle uh, of life and death, uh, you know, whereas, you know, someone might might use Twitter to, you know, post what they have to lunch. it uh, You know, the, the QAnon believer thinks that they're like fighting the devil by posting so, you know, they're certainly at that aspect. I think also the, the social media companies, you know, Facebook and Twitter especially, we're just really concerned that if they clamp down on QAnon, that that then Republicans would, would use that against them in, in court hearings or support more regulation. So they really turned a blind eye to it for many years. Um, and, and frankly, now that Elon Musk controls Twitter and uh, I think Facebook has also become more shy about moderation, um, we're seeing a lot of these same QAnon people surge back uh, and you know, it gives them an ability to recruit more more people.
0: But I guess to Reddit's credit, uh, since they sort of st- it started out on Reddit, they have a QAnon casualty board, do they not?
3: They do, yes. And so this is the board where people who have um, lost member family members to QAnon gather. And particularly in when QAnon first began in 2018 and 2019, there really was very little information about QAnon available outside of the movement itself. I mean, there were a couple articles from me and reporters like me, um, but but people really had no resources. And so these, these grieving family members found each other on Reddit and, and it sort of created a community to say, like, you know, why is my dad talking about, um, you know, these, these tunnels where children are imprisoned and stuff like this.
0: Well, it's the first manifestation of it, at least that I recall, was when that character shot up a pizza place in Georgetown, thinking he was liberating children from a basement that had been captured and held prisoner by Hillary Clinton in order to have their their blood drunk because apparently democrats drink children's blood in their lust for pedophilia now and he fortunately he fired his gun I think into the ceiling but um, was that the first uh, manifestation of it i mean when did it first raise its sort of bizarre head
3: yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a great example of it, Ian. The um, you know, the Pizzagate was sort of this precursor to QAnon, uh, and this is as you said, this belief that Democrats were terrorizing children in a Washington pizzeria, um, and, and you know, I, I think that really shows the dangers that these, these right wing hucksters and con artists uh, are are playing with when they are telling their audiences, um, you know, these these unspeakable crimes are happening to children, uh, and no one's doing anything about it. And so, in the case of the Pizzagate gun, then I think it's somewhat natural if if you believe that is serious, you know, for someone to say, well, maybe I'll do something about it. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll take action. Um, and obviously, you know, he was, he was very wrong. Um, but, you know, unfortunately no one was hurt, but, but, you know, as he was being dragged away by the police, he said, well, I guess I had the, you know, my Intel was bad. I, I, I guess I, 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 you know, I just had the wrong idea. Um, and, and so, you know, it, it really is this, this very kind of potent mixture that, that these people are capitalizing on and often with, people who are mentally ill or um, are just not really connected to reality. And then, you know, the results can be very violent.
0: But how is it not political, though, uh, Will? Because if you were a political operative, you know, doing opposition research or, or, or one of those dirty tricksters, if you came up with this idea that the opposing party, the Democrats, are so beyond the pale that they drink children's blood, cavort with Satan, and worship the devil and run pedophilia uh, rings. I mean, you couldn't portray the political opposition in a worse light. So I just have this suspicion that somehow this is... I mean, well, let's talk about how, in your book, you make it clear that, to some extent, the Republican Party uh, has been captured by this cult, or at least has played footsie with it.
3: Absolutely. I mean, you know, we talked earlier about Donald Trump and, and his willingness to to avoid criticizing QAnon. Um, you know, we also have Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was a hardcore QAnon believer, I, I would say, in the maybe top one or two percent of, of devotion to QAnon out of the whole movement. Um, and now she's, I, I would say, maybe the third or fourth most powerful member of the Republican Party in in the House, um, you know, and so they really have been, been welcomed into the party. Uh, and, and we also see these conspiracy theories permeating the party more broadly. I mean, we think about these accusations that anyone who talks about gay rights is a is a groomer or a pedophile. Um, you know, down in Florida, they say they're they're cracking down on the groomers. And really, I think that this language really wouldn't exist without QAnon, and, and has been embraced by the party. Um, it, as you said, I think it's a very effective, unfortunately, political insult because. You know, you're saying that not only does this person agree with me on, or disagree with me on some kind of mundane policy issue about taxes, or, or, uh, or what have you, but that they're, that they are, you know, really that they're terrorizing children.
0: So let's talk about one of the characters in in your book that you profiled, a Q QAnon promoter named Austin Steinbart, who has this ranch, which is likened to sort of Charles Manson's uh, ranch um, <laughs> in the way that these sort of QAnon casualties come and live there, and it profiles these two sisters, Kylie and Casey. Kylie gets sucked into the QAnon cult. Casey does everything she can to try and, you know, extract her sister from this kind of journey into this weird rabbit hole. And the sister that's trying to save her sister, Casey, ends up, dying at a very young age and she had a heart attack at the age of twenty seven. It seems it feels like in a way, you know, the situation broke her heart. How does it strike you? I mean, you know them.
3: Yeah, I mean it that's a great that's a great question. I think um, you know, it as you said, I mean this was uh Casey who was who's was not the, the QAnon sister, she um she called me and, you know, I became aware of the situation because she called me and said you know, how can I get my sister out of this QAnon cult, essentially this, this group in the desert. And, um, they're devoted to this guy named Austin Steinbart who, who claims to be Q. Uh, and you know, the FBI is getting involved and they have all these guns and stuff like this. Um, and so, you know, I really felt for her because, you know, as I said, I mean, these people are in these kind of hopeless situations where you just lose your relative to this mania. Um, and so, you know, I, certainly not really trained to help in these situations, but, but I thought I might at least learn more about it. Uh, and then suddenly, you know, as you said, I mean, Casey died in, in very, um, a very surprising circumstance of this heart attack. And, and I lost touch with her and, and it was only later that I found out that she had died. Um, and so I, I went out to Arizona to this, this compound and I, uh, you know, I, I hung out with her sister, the, the QAnon devotee and, and Austin Steinbart Um, he had kind of rebuilt his, his movement and, uh, was being welcomed into the the state Republican Party. He was he was involved in the the Arizona uh, ballot recount, and he was running a congressional campaign uh, for a, a candidate. And I mean, it, it was really sort of shocking to me how you know he gave a speech where some state senators uh, were. And so I mean, it was very bizarre to me how you know this guy who was whose ideas are just absolutely nuts and who had served a prison time because of his actions, uh, just sort of became a, a local uh, Republican bigwig.
0: Well, who then, I mean, he claims to have been Q, and Q sends these Q drops out, right, to his devotees, missives that they cling to and then widely disseminated. My understanding, though, was that the original Q, at least the one that people thought was Q, was some guy that was living in the Philippines, and then his son then, became the pretender and he said he was Q. So who the hell is Q?
3: <laughs> right so so as you said I mean QAnon really is is all based around this this anonymous figure named Q and then the clues he posts. Uh and you know it's never been definitively proven but but you know and sort of and QAnon believers think that he is someone close to Trump maybe Michael Flynn um but but I mean in, in reality I think the the most likely explanation is is this father and son duo in the Philippines that you mentioned um Ron and Jim Watkins and this is all laid out in this HBO documentary Q into the Storm but essentially these are random guys who ran an internet forum and according to this account they they sort of seized control of QAnon in order to promote their forum And they said well now Q will only post on our forum uh, and so coincidentally now they have all this political power uh, and the, the QAnon devotees see them as heroes so, so I think that's really the best argument for who's behind Q is these guys who are effectively political trolls and just uh, sort of get off on creating chaos.
0: But just in closing, though, Will, the bottom line is that they believe in the storm, the the day of reckoning, and the storm is entirely predicated upon Trump coming back. So that goes right back to the beginning of our conversation about how Fox News' top anchors and, and management knew that Trump the whole Stop the Steal thing was a hoax and a lie, but they were afraid to tell their own people. You know, They had to lie to their audience uh, as a business decision. So it goes back to that, doesn't it? That, you know, and, of course, uh, in many ways, January the 6th was seen as the storm by a lot of them, including the guy with the horns who was there with his feet up on the chair of the Senate's desk. So how can you disassociate Trump from this movement?
3: I mean, I, I really think you can't. I mean, he's their hero. They call him the God Emperor, for example. I mean, he really is the, the guy at the center of it. And, and you know, I'm glad you brought up the storm because that's kind of the – that often is underplayed when people talk about QAnon. And, you know, you, you might people might listen to this and they read the book and they think, okay, well, like a lot of pe- people believe weird stuff. Who cares? But the, the point of QAnon is hoping for this fascist moment, the storm, when Donald Trump will arrest and execute all of his enemies – and bring in essentially a Trump dictatorship. So, you know, QAnon is really priming people for, for the end of American democracy. Uh, and, you know, so many people on January 6th were QAnon believers, and that really amped up their actions. I mean, Ashley Babbitt, who was shot by police, uh, another woman who died, they thought that that, that, that day, January 6th, was going to be the storm and, and sort of bring about the end of the American republic. Uh, so, so this is not just a, a weird thing to believe, but it really is sort of a, a fascist movement in America.
0: Well, Will Summer, I thank you for joining us here today, and I highly recommend your book to understand this fascist movement. It's a part of a broader fascist movement, and the fact that it's so crazy it should alarm people, both by the fact that it's anti-democratic, but also it's completely insane. Uh, so thank you so much.
3: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Will Summer, who's a politics reporter for The Daily Beast and the co-host of the podcast, Fever Dreams. His work covering QAnon and other conspiracy theories has been featured in multiple documentaries, including HBO's Q, Into the Storm. And he's the author of the new book, Just Out, Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America. We're going to take a brief station break and back discussing a new report on Russia's war crimes in targeting healthcare infrastructure and healthcare personnel in Ukraine. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Christian DeVos, the Director of Research and Investigations at Physicians for Human Rights. He has worked as a human rights advocate, attorney and researcher for organizations including Amnesty International, the United States Institute for Peace, the War Crimes Research Office, and Leiden University's Grotius Center for International Legal Studies, Previously, was a senior advocacy officer with the Open Society Justice Initiative, and from 2007 to 2009, he served as a law clerk with the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, and he's the author of Complementarity, Catalyst Compliance, the International Criminal Court in Uganda, Kenya, and the Democratic Republic of Congo, and he is a co-author of a new report at Physicians for Human Rights, Destruction and Devastation, One Year of Russia's Assault on Ukraine's Healthcare System. Welcome to Background Briefing, Christian DeVos.
4: Thank you very much.
0: And of course, we're coming up, Christian, on the uh, tomorrow, Friday is the first anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I mean, we're watching essentially a country being murdered before our eyes and its people killed and displaced. And it's a complete horror. And it's also asymmetrical. I mean, Russia is free to destroy Ukraine, but Ukraine can't strike back at Russia, so this is one of the most hideous human rights situations, I guess, since the uh, war in, U- in the former Yugoslavia. Are there any other examples recently that could match the horror of what we're witnessing in Ukraine?
4: I think probably going back to the the Balkan wars and and the uh, the Yugoslavia tribunal, at least for the for the European continent, is probably the the most best and recent parallel that we can think of. Of course, there have been many conflicts around, around the globe as well, um, though I think the, the sheer uh, uh, audacity of a, of a war of aggression of this nature uh, and the scale uh, of devastation in, in, in the course of the war um, is, is, is truly uh, without recent memory.
0: And shortly after the war began, uh, in fact, within a couple of weeks, We all saw the bombing of a hospital in Mariupol and this maternity and children's hospital was bombed and there was footage of a heavily pregnant woman being carried out of the hospital on a stretcher and apparently she she later died along with her baby. We also, around that time, there was a theatre that had clearly marked front and back and on the roof the word children and there were 1,200 people in that theatre 600 of whom apparently died so russia started out pretty much uh, right out of the gate with indiscriminate attacks on civilians in the worst possible way so why has it taken so long i know you've you've documented this one year of atrocities but what about the international human rights forums and in the, in the hague etc have they been following this or is your report an attempt a wake up call for them? I mean this mm-hmm. has been as I say, it's been going on for a year.
4: Indeed. Um yes, and, and as you rightly note, the the, the bombing of the, the Mario Theater and, and the, uh, the, the the death of the pregnant woman and her child at the maternity hospital, which which our report mentions, um was a brutal and, and a stark reminder of of the uh, the barbarity of of this of this war um the, the report actually uh, interviews includes an interview with uh Dr. Oksana Kirsanova, who um was was actually providing um, care to, at a nearby hospital in Mariupol the regional intensive care hospital um but uh, ordinarily she worked at that that fraternity hospital that was bombed um you know the report is is meant to be a wake up call, in particular, as as it it, it concludes that there's a, a reasonable basis to believe, which is which is the standard that the International Criminal Court uses to initiate investigations. Um, the, the evidence uh, is strong enough to suggest that that further investigation by courts like the ICC, as well as uh, domestic prosecutors, either in Ukraine or in other other states, under the principle of what's called universal jurisdiction, uh, could also uh, investigate and and hopefully prosecute some of these crimes. What what the report shows is that clearly attacks on on healthcare and personnel and facilities are really part of a of a broader attack on civilian population and infrastructure, uh, which is as you note. Um, but I, I think our concern is that uh, that healthcare in particular has particularly devastating consequences and effects beyond just the the bombing of a hospital, but the cascading effects that has on uh, the the local community, their ability to access essential medicines and and care for chronic conditions. Uh, And so, because it's particularly awful, uh, we believe that this needs to be a priority, an urgent priority for prosecutors, both in The Hague, uh, in Kyiv, and in other states that can also uh, take action.
0: And the report is the joint undertaking among eyewitness to atrocities, Insecurity Insight, the Media Initiative for Human Rights, your organization, Physicians for Human Rights, and the Ukrainian Healthcare Center. And it's found, it's documented attacks on healthcare facilities, attacks on ambulances, destruction of critical health infrastructure, and theft of supplies, assaults, tortures, and ill treatment of health workers, including doctors, nurses, and paramedics. So, it is absolutely grim. It's unequivocally true and documented. And again, I wish there was sufficient outrage. I guess you can't shame Putin, though, right? He, he doesn't <laughs> seem to have any shame because he's he's allowing thousands and thousands, maybe 200,000 of his own people to die. So do you see any ability to shame the Russians, or is it really necessary to hold them to account before a criminal court for several different forums, including the u n by the way
4: yes no i I think what we need to do is be insisting on accountability uh, and that accountability comes in in many different ways. It includes criminal accountability for for violations of the laws of war and human rights violations that that this report details that includes political accountability unfortunately the the u n system the the structure uh, such as it is has been so badly abused by uh, by the Russian government, um, it has has made uh, paralysis in the UN Security Council, for instance. Um, but uh, there are other other alternatives within the UN system as well, including the the Human Rights Council, which will be meeting shortly in Geneva. Um, so you know, in, insisting on political accountability, on criminal accountability, ultimately restitution will have to be paid for the enormous damage that's been done to Ukrainian infrastructure, including the hospitals and healthcare system, which which the report details. Um, so so all of that is going to be part of a broader a broader package that will um, one day need to be need to be uh, addressed. Um, but in, in the meantime, I think uh, precisely the point of this report and the work of other NGOs and and documenting organizations is to ensure that evidence is preserved uh, and that uh, investigations to the extent they can happen now happen uh, so that one day there is, uh, is accountability, uh, you know, going back to the the experience of the Yugoslavia Tribunal, it took many years for for that Tribunal to ultimately um, become operational and functioning and and able to to undertake proceedings against defendants. Uh, and um, I'm confident that one day uh, we will see that that kind of justice uh, for, the, for the Russia-Ukraine war as well.
0: So the report, which you're co-author of, uh, Kristen Devos which is available at Physicians for Human Rights, Destruction and Devastation, one year of Russia's assault on Ukraine's healthcare system, documents a total of 707 attacks on Ukraine's healthcare system, with 292 documented attacks that damaged or destroyed 218 hospitals and clinics, and many health facilities were attacked more than once. There were 65 documented attacks on ambulances, there were 181 documented attacks on other health infrastructures, such as pharmacies, blood centers, dental clinics, research centers, etc. 86 attacks on healthcare workers were documented, with 62 health workers killed and 52 injured, and many others were threatened, imprisoned, taken hostage, or forced, forced to work under Russian occupation. And one in 10 Ukrainian hospitals have been directly damaged from these attacks. So, the evidence is overwhelming and the bill is there to be paid, right? This is, uh, as you point out, though, Christian, it's not just that the destruction that, that I've just outlined, it's an ongoing problem, isn't it? Because it has a cascading effect.
4: Precisely, yes. Uh, there the, are the attacks themselves and the, the damage they do to, to uh, buildings and, and bodies. Uh, but but the impact, the broader impact of attacks on health, you know, we, we don't yet have the full picture and, and it will take some time to see. But the report uh, tries to uh, unpack at least some of those some of those statistics, including uh, highlighting a, a recent report from the International Organization for Migration or a survey, rather, that found as of December of 2022, one in every three Ukraine was experiencing the lack of mental services. Uh, and the World Health Organization itself has noted spiraling costs, logistical hurdles, and damaged infrastructure are making access to essential services all the more challenging for for, uh, millions of civilians. Um, So there's this broader destabilizing effect, as I said, that attacks on health have on civilian populations in terms of their ability to access health care, and frankly, uh, as a strategy to sow terror in communities when when it's not safe to go to the hospital and to seek the care that you need. Um, and, And I think that's precisely why um, it, it's so worrisome that we see signs that healthcare is, is, is quite often uh, a target of, 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 of in these conflicts. When it's absolutely clear under the Geneva Conventions and the laws of war that that hospitals, healthcare facilities, healthcare workers are all protected under international humanitarian law.
0: But they're also the Russians are also attacking the energy grid. We've seen that re- relentlessly, and it continues. And isn't there an obvious connection there? I mean, for example, premature babies are kept alive with ventilators, etc. Hospitals obviously require electricity. I imagine there are backup generators. But what's the impact of this sustained attack yes. on the uh, Ukrainian energy grid on the on the healthcare system? Well,
4: that's a great question, and it, it, you know, it's exactly why why we want to these attacks on healthcare facilities as part of a broader attack on on civilian infrastructure and and the electric grid is a, a, the perfect example uh, and indeed we have the report includes 10 detailed case studies and, and in almost all of those studies uh you we have testimony and and direct eyewitness experiences of healthcare uh, hospital staff and, and medical directors who were recounting uh the bravery and resilience of their staff and continuing to provide care and Attend to the birth of babies and keep them alive uh, in neonatal wards uh, when when there was no power and they were seeking generators. Um, so it, it's it, it's a testament to the the resilience and the the bravery and ingenuity of of of, of so many in the Ukrainian healthcare system. Um, but it, it is it, it dev- very much demonstrates the impact that these other attacks on on civilian infrastructure then have on on other other parts of the the system including hospitals um, and, and so we need to, to look at this as a comprehensively
0: but when Russia entered the war in Syria in 2015 didn't they conduct similar attacks on hospitals and healthcare facilities so it would seem that this is a part of the Russian military strategy playbook.
4: Yeah, that—that uh, that was precisely why, at least at Physicians for Human Rights, we were we were so uh, concerned and and watchful, uh, even as the, the the war, the full-scale invasion began in February, precisely because of the, the the research we'd been doing for for some years on the the conflict in Syria, um, and we have been closely documenting. Uh, Attacks on health in in Syria for for many years as well. Um, There's been 601 attacks on 400 healthcare facilities in Syria since March of 2011. Um, We have uh, identified that at least 90% of these attacks since 2015 can be attributed to Syria and its the Syrian government and its Russian allies. Uh, This includes the killing of 831 healthcare workers in Syria. And notably, when Russia did formally intervene in the conflict, we saw an increase of these hospital attacks uh, by 62 percent between 2015 and 2016. Um, So, you know, inferring from from those figures, uh, I think it is it is precisely why we have been concerned that this is part of the playbook. And it's not it has happened in Syria and it is unfolding before our eyes in Ukraine.
0: So you're presenting the evidence that you've gathered here, along with the other organizations, that are co-authors with the report, along with you, Christian DeVos. It's being presented to the non-binding tribunal this week in The Hague. And Stephen Rapp, who is a former U.S. ambassador at large for war crimes issues, he's one of the three judges hearing evidence on aggression in Ukraine. So is there a possibility, at the end of the day, that there could be an indictment and an arrest warrant for Russia's President Vladimir Putin?
4: Uh, yes, yeah, so this is this is a People's Court, what it was as it's called, uh, sitting in The Hague this week, um, particularly focusing on the crime of aggression. Uh, which which our report does not does not address the legal elements of the crime of aggression, but we very much see the impact of of, of the invasion and and the war of aggression as it's played out in in the healthcare system. Um, so we we submitted the report into into evidence before before the people's court. Um, that is up to the bench to to decide uh, if they will issue um, an indictment. I believe that, that that decision will be made quite soon. i want to be clear that this is not a not a not a court in the formal sense. Um, uh, there have been similar exercises in the past to to engage the the moral authority of uh, of the law even when politically uh, such a tribunal is not yet possible and because the international criminal court Only has jurisdiction over war crimes and crimes against humanity, the crime of aggression. We're still searching for a a political uh, or a legal. A forum um, that could that could uh, ensure investigation and prosecution of that particular crime. Um, so that that's a conversation that's that's underway in, in the halls of the UN and elsewhere. Um, but it's taking a long time. So this People's Court is is meant um, to to uh, gather the evidence that's already very very much available and to, as you say, um, likely issue uh, uh, an indictment that's. One um, hopes can be the basis for for a, a formal um, court that can
0: can address the crime of aggression. But just in closing here, Christian, your report recommends to various organizations that they act. And I'll just quickly read through them. Uh, the International Criminal Court's Office of, of the Prosecutor, the Prosecutor General of Ukraine, the Independent International Commission, of inquiry on Ukraine and other national prosecutors, the diplomatic community, including member states of the European Union, the United Nations, the UN Security Council and the Organization of Security and Cooperation in Europe, the government of Ukraine, and the UN Human Rights Council and its member states. So this is a pretty broad salvo, right, that you're, you're at least you're getting the word out.
4: Absolutely, that that is the intention, and, and there's, there's a role for all of these actors to play. Um,
0: First and foremost,
4: amongst investigators and prosecutors, as, as you know, to as we said, should be prioritizing in these crimes in particular, and 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 ensuring that they are part of the the broader uh, patterns of, of of criminality that uh, that's being investigated. Um, but absolutely, to the political community as well, that attention continue to to be paid to to attacks on healthcare, um, and and that we use every possible. Forum in the UN and beyond to uh, ensure ac- accountability and justice for for these crimes. Um, so so this is one year on, as you say, and it's uh, it, it's beyond time um, that that uh, accountability be be
0: achieved. And uh, listeners can get the report at Physicians for Human Rights, right?
4: Absolutely. The report is on our website, phr.org, as well as all of our partner or the the partner authoring organizations have have it on their websites as well.
0: Um, phr.org. Exactly. Okay. Well, I thank you very much for joining us here today, Christian DeVos.
4: Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate your interest.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Christian DeVos, who's the Director of Research and Investigations at Physicians for Human Rights. He has worked as a human rights advocate, attorney, and researcher for organizations including Amnesty International, the United States Institute for Peace, and the War Crimes Research Office, and Leiden University's Grotius Center for International Legal Studies. Previously, he was a senior advocacy officer with the Open Society Justice Initiative. And from 2007 to 2009, he served as a law clerk with the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. He's the author of Complementarity, Catalyst Compliance, the International Criminal Court in Uganda, Kenya, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. And he is a co-author of a new report at Physicians for Human Rights, Destruction and Devastation, One Year of Russia's Assaults on Ukraine's Healthcare System. And we'll have a link to the report at backgroundbriefing.org. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now.